Today on Capricorn Matters, we talk about jobs, estrangements, fear, working at Subway, and so much more with very special guest, Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. Capricorn Matters. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahanga, California. Or should I say Capricorn Matters? Listeners, I'm here to give you a public service announcement before we speak with esteemed guest Beth Pickens. Yesterday was Sunday. I was doing a lot of cleaning and I also lit some candles because I knew it was the full moon and I'm putting out a book proposal and I'm trying to cultivate a vibe. I was talking to my landlord in the door, in the doorway. Doors open. I smell something. I turn around. There's a fire. My altar caught on fire. I had a candle there my sister gave me. The candle was in front of a card that Kaya gave me. That was also next to a bandana that used to belong to Beja George's and her memorial paw print. There was also a handkerchief nearby but laying flat somewhere safe that said, be here now by a friend to the show, Caroline Piquita. I think, I think that the wind blew the bandana into the candle. What powerful gust? I do not know. Blew it into the candle that completely burned up. It is no longer in existence. There's like a tiny square of it, but it set the card from Kaya on fire, which melted the plastic doily underneath the candle, which surprises nobody that I had a plastic doily, which then also caught on fire Beja's bandana and a ribbon that was holding the dog tags of several departed pets. All this happened in a course of seconds. And then I threw the card onto the floor and I started stomping it with my slipper, thus putting out the fire and also burning the carpet of my rental house at the same time. I tell you this to say, please be safe. Witches, wizards, warlocks, If you've gotten lackadaisical about candle safety in any way, please go take a look at your altar. Take a look at your little spaces where you have candles and just make them even safer. Super, 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 super safe because I love you listeners. That's right. I'm not afraid to say it. And I want your houses to be safe. And I also want your precious objects, including your plastic doilies to say, stay pristine and to do the thing you want them to do, which is, you know, remain a place where you can go and Worship at the feet of your dearly departed pets. And with that note, that public service announcement, I give you my talk with friend to the show, Beth Pickens. But wait, I have one more thing to say. If you want to sign up for my graphic memoir class, I think I still have two spots left. You can find them at NicoleJGeorges.com in the shop section. Class starts in April. We meet once a week for five or six weeks. And if you have questions, you can email me through there. But please never send me a direct message on Instagram regarding anything having to do with work. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Beth Pickens is the author of the books, Your Art Will Save Your Life and Make Your Art No Matter What. Beth is an arts consultant, a Capricorn, and an esteemed friend to the show. You can join her homework club right now at BethPickens.com. 
Beth joined producer Ponyo and I via Zoom in the Capricorn Matters Social Distancing Studios to give you advice about work, family estrangements, fear, and more. Now, please enjoy my talk with a very special friend to the show, Beth Pickens. Beth Pickens, welcome back to Capricorn Matters. I have longed to be here, so it's a real joy to be here now. It's been so long. There's so much to talk about. Where are you zooming in from right now? I am zooming in from Aquarius season in Minneapolis, Minnesota. How does it feel to be a Capricorn in Aquarius season? Not good. A little uh, destabilizing. It's a little bit wild. Yeah, it's a little uh, precarious. I'm here from Tahanga, California, where, as you know, I found mountain lion scat right outside of my home office window. You could tell from the flavor you chewed on it. I, Beth, a woman, a a cougar conservationist woman came over and we were both holding the dry feces and she was holding it so close to her face that that's what I thought she was going to (laughs) do. She's going to take one little tiny lick just to establish familiarity. I thought she was going to take a little bite just to be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's mountain lion. That's mountain lion. You guys were going to have a full on female trouble moment. No, pink flamingos. Pink flamingos moment (laughs) where as soon as the mountain lion leaves, I have, I stroll up and take a bite. Anyway, that's what's going, that's big news over here. That's big news. The gossip over here is that there was a mountain lion. And then my gossip is. There's two feet of snow where I am, and I haven't been around snow regularly since a, a very long time. I've been in California a very long time away from snow. So what it's happened? Cold. Oh, I don't it's like extre- that. It, it's going to be like seven degrees in Minneapolis tomorrow. And so I told my friends, I don't want to do any of the outdoor activities that are available. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that happens to your body when you move to Southern California, where you become a real wimp when it comes to the cold. Yeah. With the cold, but you know what? Huh? Fire season. We know how to navigate that. That's true. That's true. Um, what do you think about the word dyke and people being scandalized now? People are scandalized again by the word young, dyke. <laughs> young people are scandalized by the word dyke. Well, language just, you know, we're on the merry-go-round of language. It just goes and comes back and goes and comes back. I have always liked it. I, I've gone in and out of, I, I, I always might like my language to about myself as a queer person to just a little bit counter whatever the dominant language is, because once the dominant language hits, I always feel like it's too dorky and it doesn't work anymore. So with dyke kind of falling out of favor, I've definitely liked it more. And I've called myself a dyke a few times. And um, yeah, I love the word dyke. I think early nineties dyke culture and imagery is so iconic and I feel so lustful for it, even though I wasn't there for it. I was too young. Um, but really like early nineties, San Francisco dyke culture, I think people, you and me, our generation is sort of really romanticizes that. Oh, absolutely. I really like it. I'm wearing my hothead Paisan t-shirt Ugh. right now, which to me is the height of that era. Lesbian, lesbian terrorist homicidal lesbian terrorist homicidal lesbian terrorist you know you know of course i had a diabetic cat for many many years named chicken i do because i did it not named for hothead paisan's cat chicken just happened to also be called chicken and then i read hothead paisan and i was like oh my god the cat in this is called chicken listeners may not know that one of our first interactions was you commissioning a portrait of chicken and you sent me 
audio of the noises chicken would make around your house. And you told me a lot of really nice things about your cat. Oh, she was one of the loves of my life. You know, yeah. as different pets die, you know, you, you sort of never really get over it. It's just sort of integrated into you. Yeah. And when chicken died, that was one of those, like a little part of me was altered forever. Oh my God. Beth Pickens. I was on a walk with one of my neighbors the other day. I started weeping about Beja's death because mm-hmm. my neighbor was like, my dog had an ecstatic death. I'm a yogi and I talked him through it and he gave one ecstatic last breath and then he was gone. And I was like, that's not what happened with Beja. Oh God. So then my neighbor was holding me in the street outside of my house. Jesus. <laughs> What's happening in Tahunga? None of us are well, none of us. <laughs> I've been, and I felt like a, what is it like a vulnerability hangover where I was like, I can never see her again. <laughs> <laughs> and remind the listening public how many years it's been since Beja died. Like 10 years. Yeah. Oh, chicken died in 2008. I'm still chemically <laughs> altered from it. <laughs> I was just reading, somebody was writing something about grief that was like, I don't feel better. Like everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> you'll no, just you feel don't. You feel different. It just gets easier, but it doesn't go away. It just gets integrated into your life experience. Yeah. Or it's almost, I just always felt like I, I have joy alongside that grief, but the grief yes. is still there. Like I can still just turn to it and it's beige. Yeah. It just doesn't, it's not so sharp. It doesn't overtake you the same way. Like fresh acute grief does. No, unless I just sat, I just, unless I just sat with her ceramic paw print every morning. <laughs> But thank God that's true for you because you're an artist and a writer and you need to be able to channel grief. You need to be able to tap into it because most people can't, are unwilling and or unable. And so the work that you make is a conduit to people for to reach their own grief. Mm. Mm. Thanks for that perspective. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, okay. I'm going to give you a, sh- we have two long questions and a short question. Okay. Give what it, do you lay choose? It on me. Lay what it do you on choose? Me. Let's first. do the short one first. So as like a warm up. Okay, ready? You get, yeah, you yeah. got to warm it up a little bit. Dear Sagittarian slash Capricorn Matters, what are some questions I can ask myself to figure out if it's time to, uh, time to plan an exit from my current job? Thanks from Worker and Wachusets. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're thinking of leaving a job, it's probably time to leave the job, sort of like a relationship. So some questions to ask from me, Capricorn person who cares about money and jobs and sustainability is to think about what would be a reasonable plan? What's the urgency? What would you like to do next for money? Are you planting those seeds? But to, um, I I think if you're asking yourself, is it time to leave my job? You probably already know that answer. It's like when you realize you're thirsty, you were already dehydrated. So once you know that thing, it's like a haircut. Once I know I want a haircut, I'm obsessed and I have to get my haircut. Mm. Tattoos are like that too. So I think, dear asker, even saying this question to us by now, you are probably thinking about leaving your job a lot. And I would encourage you to start doing um, just a little bit of movement. You're not making a commitment to leave yet, but maybe you're dipping the toe in the waters. But you asked what questions. So let's start there. Questions to ask yourself. Here are some questions I would ask you. And I would ask myself if I were you, how would I like to be earning money? Is it similar to what I'm doing now? Would I like a big departure? What have I liked about this job? What has, what have I not liked or has grown not workable for me about this job? 
what do I want my life to be like? And how does paid work fit into that and not fit into that? Mm. Kind of get curious about what your lived experience is there of late and what you want in the next season of your life when it comes to paid work. What would you add, Nicole? I think these are great. I mean, I do think this, I think most people, when they ask an advice question, they already know the answer on some level, which is why they're asking it. Um, and so I think this person knows it's time to start planning that exit. And I, I would think, yeah, is there a way for you to overlap so that you have a safety, safety buffer somehow, if you start cruising around a little bit and, um, yeah, I don't know. how do you know Sometimes. when it's time to exit? Is it making you, are you, do you dread, do you dread it? Mm-hmm. Like, do mm-hmm. you dread going in? I just don't want you to live your life in a place of dread. I was thinking about one time I had a freelance thing where I was had to meet with somebody every week who I just dreaded meeting with them. And then I had a moment when I, oh, here's what it is for me. When I'm in a job or have an obligation where I'm like, I would rather do anything than this job. I would rather dance on a street corner with a sign. I would rather dance for money on the street corner without a sign. Like I would sell pictures of my feet. Like I would rather do anything than this job, then it's time for me to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think just for good measure, since we know so little, we know, well, we know actually nothing about the person and their, and their job. I think it would be also uh, useful to ask yourself questions about what would make you stay more money, mm-hmm. different responsibilities, different things to do, different title, different work environment. What would make you want to stay? Not be willing to, but want to. Mm-hmm. I once worked at a subway <clears throat> making about 375 an hour. Oh, and glorious. the workplace became toxic when a woman I worked with named Becca, who was 16 and had a baby, and she told me about blowing pot smoke in her baby's face, suburban oh. Kansas, 1994. We'll um, pay for that kid's therapy. <laughs> She got mad at me because she had a crush on another person we work with named Jason. Jason was tall and had long blonde hair and dragged a cross in a community production of Jesus. <laughs> it was some Jesus holiday and he dragged a cross down the street, top like topless as JC. Anyway, she Jeez. had a crush on she had a crush on him and I left a note for him once that said Becca wants you. And then he showed it to her and she was like, "I'm going to kick your fucking ass." Uh-oh. And you know what? God intervened, not JC, and that subway closed. And so then after our meeting telling us it closed where I got a giant jar of banana peppers that my mom still has in her kitchen, I drove to a different (laughs) subway, got a job at a different subway. My best friend worked there. Stoner skater worked there. It was a much better working environment. Wow. The universe really took care of you (laughs) for that context very well. And I still have not gotten my ass kicked by Becca. I know I'm not trying to bait her, but she's coming for you. Or the kid she blew pot smoke into its face is coming for you. Somebody's coming for you. I have to tell you one more set of people I worked with. There was a guy, I can't remember his name, skinny white guy with a mustache and long brown hair and his girlfriend um, was kind of like Ren Fair lady. And she showed me, she had really big boobs. And she was like, look at this. And she picked up her boobs and put them on the counter at Subway and moved them back and forth. <laughs> And that was, she went, that was her talent, showing me her cool talent. <laughs> and they played Vampire the Masquerade. 
which was like a role-playing game. And they're like, I just killed a vampire in the woods. And I was like, they were LARPers. Yeah. But I didn't know what that was. I was like, do I call the police? They just told me they killed somebody they thought was a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, God works in mysterious ways. (laughs) I hope listener, we've given you a plethora of questions and some very sad, uh, working class (laughs) stories of, of, of labor from the nineties to really send you on your path. This is another work question. This is a great segue. Dear Capricorn Matters. Hi, Nicole and Beth. I worked on a movie that is nominated for several Oscars this year. Well, well, during brag, that's amazing. During three months of shooting, I worked for minimum wage, put in 60 plus hours a week, commuted two and a half hours each day and texted the national crisis text line on a regular basis. Shout out to 741741. The movie is the last film project I worked on. I went to school and switched industries during the pandemic, partially because the job was so difficult for me. I'm writing from the work from home desk of my new nine to five job that pays me well, hashtag grateful, and kind of grieving my movie making dreams. Any words of wisdom as I try to reconcile the runaway success of a project that broke my spirit and exploited me as a worker, but is a genuinely good movie. Note, I am not invited to the Oscars. Right. Thank of you. Signed far, far below the line. Mm, oh, yeah. Well, having having a lot of intel into how TV and movie is made, how the vegan sausage is really made and um, all the people who work on it and what kind of environments those so often are. Um they're really, really awful work environments in an industry that is so exploitative and so narcissistic. And that is so, that's really difficult to come up against a desire. It's like this profession that truly is the worst of heightened capitalism, disaster capitalism, mixing with people's creative desires and creative drives. And those, the intermingling of those two is really perplexing and ends up really nasty. I think a lot of beautiful work that gets made like big films, um, a lot of the people who worked on them probably wouldn't have a lot of good things to say about the experience. How films are made, especially big budget films is so often really exploitative for the workers um, for the people who aren't stars, for the people whose whose role isn't um, synonymous with narcissism and, and enabled all the time, these are really nasty work environments. And really good work is made. You know, it's so interesting. I was recently reading. I've been on, on a writing retreat, and I read a lot while I was there. And I read the most recent book by Dodie Bellamy called Bereaved, which is a collection of essays that was published in the aftermath of her husband of many, many years, Kevin Killian's death. And uh, Dodie and Kevin are just such genius writers. And and Dodie's book is really, really beautiful. But one of the moments in it that I loved so much is she's good friends with um, Hedy, Hedy from uh, Semiotext, the publisher of Semiotext. And she said something to Hedy about his proximity to many narcissists and that he seemed to always be in conflict with narcissists around him. And he said, well, narcissists make things. (laughs) They make all the things. (laughs) And when I read that, I was like, God, that, that really rings true in the world of film because 
making a film is such an audacious act of impossibility. You have to have a drive that is parallel to a narcissistic wound to keep pursuing it. You have to <laughs> believe in it so much to get it made or else you, you would give up like uh, many sane people would because it is so, it's such almost an impossible feat to get a big budget film made. And by big budget, I mean like over 5 million. It is so difficult to make film. It requires so many people and getting so much money. It is an act of impossibility. And so who makes things that are impossible? People who are not great to be around in other capacities. And work cultures, including a film set, including an office culture, they are family dynamics. So my neck of the woods, my particular view on psychology is that group theory is people plus time equals conflict and family dynamics. And so these have really heightened high stakes environments like a film set, like a TV set, um, is when these family dynamics happen and they happen in such a crucible of intensity that people can really then act their worst. So to answer your question, listener, how do you revel in this? You, because of you, you had a role in this incredible thing being made. And I don't know which film it is, but if it's gotten this far, like it is so beloved by so many people and it takes so many people to make a film. It takes so many people. Most of those people are hidden and unknown to the film watching public, but anybody who's really into film or has worked in film knows how it gets done, the number of people it takes and all of the different skill level. How, how can you revel in its success while detaching from the pain of being in that environment that was so much that it set you reeling and going into another direction? Can both things be true? Can the, can that have been a horrible experience and it made a great piece of art that happens all the time? Is that good? I don't, let's not even qualify as a good or bad. It simply is. It's simply true that so much great work comes out of really fraught environments. Um, I'm not for the exploitation of workers in any way. And I know that really fraught, terrible work environments in the arts still produce incredible works of, of art. Does it have to be that? No. It does not have to be that. You can have a healthy, functioning, more sustainable work life in any sector, including film and television. But um, I'm really glad for you that you found a different way of earning money and you might come back to film in a different way, one that is not uh, reliant on income, one that is the love of the art and the craft. I wish you that path that maybe you start to explore. How do you bring film back into your life? Mm -hmm. And it's great that you have a nine to five job that pays you well, because then, mm -hmm. you know, we talk on the podcast a lot about the danger of mixing your art practice with capitalism and mixing your artistic output with money for that and how stressful that can be and how that can really ruin the experience. So now you do get the gift of having your art separate from the way you pay your bills. And as a teacher, my long and a lot of teachers I know our long-term goal or thing we struggle with is not teaching to the back of the room in the way, like not focusing on the one person who's souring the experience and like leaving all the other students behind as you try to tap dance harder for the one student who's grimacing at you. And I ask you to do the same thing. When you think about this movie, can you separate it and your role in it and how happy you are from the, the bad apples? or like your direct boss or the bosses that were shitheads. Can you just be like, I worked on this movie and here's the things I liked about it. And like, can you focus on the parts of the experience that you did like, and the people that were kind to you or the people you met through it and just leave 
you know, even if it's just for small amounts of time, even if it's for like five minutes of thinking about the movie and the success and feeling happy about it without remembering the people that were assholes to you. That's what I, I mean, because I've worked for nonprofits before where things have ended in a sour way. And it's easy for me to let that like bleed over and color the entire like decade long experience. And I have to look back and so I have to squint. I have to squint really hard sometimes to think about all the people I met and enjoyed and everything I did get from that experience, not just like the one all about Eve person who chased me out at the end. Ooh, I like that you brought it back to film history. Thank you very much. That was good advice, Beth. I really liked when you said people plus time equals conflict and family dynamics. Ugh. I'll never forget in my early 20s or mid 20s, I don't know, at some point I was in my first horrible full-time job, which was um, after when I started working in nonprofits. And it was my, because I'd had such a great full-time job for the first half of my 20s. Um, when I went into my first truly toxic work environment, I couldn't believe that human adults would make life miserable at work because my thing was like, but we have to be here. I see you motherfuckers <laughs> more than I see my friends. So why wouldn't we make that good? We're going to, I uh, truly, this is when I first had the thought of like, we're going to die. Do you want to die hating each other in this building? Like literally we have to be here. Why would you not want that to be at least neutral or pleasant, if not fun? Because I see you more than people I love. <laughs> and eventually I just had to go work for myself. Oh my God. One time I worked at, a website where we sold erotic massagers, that being vibrators, but people using vibrators. It, it was a part of the website was people using vibrators for their neck. And right. part of the website was them using the exact same thing as for their sex. pussy neck. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You took the words out of my mouth. And it was in a, a gross man's basement. This man who was both a Republic, <laughs> a white man who was both a Republican and a shaman. Oh God. Donated to, um, George W. Bush, which I know when he made me vacuum his house and clean up his seafood, uh, seafood soup pans as a vegan, clean up his seafood soup pan. And then I went to throw something in the garbage and I saw his thing. I was like, thank you for your donation to George W. Bush Ugh. shaman. Anyway, in the basement, there was only three desks, me, the manager, and then one other girl. And our desks were about three feet apart from each other. And I asked for a weekend off within like five minutes of working there. So I could go to the coast with my girlfriend. And then I went up to go to the bathroom and then I came back and there was a piece of paper on my desk that said a memo from the desk of Elise, which sorry, that's her name. And she was like still three feet away from me. <laughs> and then the memo, I had emailed her my request. And then I got this memo and the memo was basically like, how dare you ask for time off after only working here for a month and absolutely not. And it just was like such a bizarre power trip of being like, why couldn't we just have this conversation? Like, why was it like, I went to the bathroom and you were like, ah, and put it on my desk. I don't work there anymore. Oh my God. Work is for jerks. Jobs are for quitting. They are. And you know, I have to say now that I look back at the different jobs I had that ended sourly, I really do have to squint hard to see those little like nuggets of gold in the, that were obfuscated. Yeah. But you're not, you're not trying to reclaim selling neck massagers and you're not trying to reclaim, 
um, being a sandwich artist. Like this person, this person, you know, ostensibly loves film. And this is probably having this work of art be so fraught. I really understand that because I've worked with so many artists who have had devastating collaboration um, uh, fallout yeah. that made incredible work. And there's like a real grieving of, I can't do this thing with this person or these people mm. anymore. And we did this incredible thing. And yeah. that's so painful. Yeah. I guess I'm just thinking about a nonprofit I worked at and helped build for a long time. And then one sour yeah. apple at the end just colored my view of the whole thing. Yeah. Human yeah. brains, man. Human brains. I would yeah. write a gratitude list for the thing. Sorry to take it back there and be the gay wad that I am, but yeah. And and also like brag about it to people who don't know that it was miserable. Be like, I worked on that. Cause other people don't know it's fraught. You'd be like, heard of the Oscars? That's actually for me. No, I'm not <laughs> I don't going. Know if you've I'm heard busy. of a little. Yeah, I decided <laughs> not to go. I don't really believe in the uh, you know, word industrial complex, but I did work on that film. <laughs> they wanted me to actually present a different award, but I just Like, you know, Kate Blanchett's speech at the Golden Globes, that's kind of me. Today's episode is brought to you by Zella Minor House, Jennifer Astion, Steph Choi, Chelsea Johnson, Jamie Rabin, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, especially and in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books. That's H-E double hockey sticks books on Venmo. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just her speaking voice. Dear Capricorn Matters, I have been no contact with my family for 20 years and live in another country, but my abusive narcissistic mother uses private detectives to find me. So I have to admit, I read her letters and messages because I'm really scared of her. Mm -hmm. Recently, she sent me a letter thanking me for the gift I sent her. But of course, I never sent her anything, and it involved animal products I would never buy. Thanks for the sheepskin. Just kidding. My suspicion is that my brother sent it to keep her happy. I'm furious since it looks like I broke no contact with her, having to. Hold on. I'm furious since it looks it looks like I broke no contact with her, having to acknowledge her physical and mental abuse, which she claims never happened. I'm under no illusion she ever will, but it hurts that my brother was there, but chooses to fake my identity to maintain the happy family illusion. But I can't say it wasn't me without breaking no contact, and it could all be a trap. Signed, wannabe family tree. Oof. My initial instinct, first I want to say family estrangement is really hard. I'm so sorry. Having had experience most of my adult life with lots of family estrangement, it's really complicated and um, it's very sad and it's so painful. And I hope you have really strong family connections to the people that you choose to have in your life. It fucking sucks. And my, my first instinct, my, my honest response hearing this story is stay far away. It, how important is it? Stay far away. Don't engage. Ask yourself, what are you available for? What, if anything, are you available for? Are you available to say, no, that wasn't me? Are you available to say, yeah, that was me. Happy birthday or whatever. Are you available to do nothing? 
but there there's a reason that you have this boundary of no contact and until you actually when and if you want to do something different i wouldn't get pulled into any lures i mean there's some family estrangement in my family and my family member who other people have become estranged from will do would try a lot of different tricks to be like are you sure come on you can't be serious and so I don't know how this happened, if it was the brother or just the mom pretending uh, and luring, but I agree. This doesn't seem like the reason for you to get back in contact with them. Like if you made a no contact order for your own mental wellness, this fluke doesn't, isn't a reason for you to have contact with them. If you specifically already have a relationship with your brother, which it doesn't seem like you do, but you could say, Hey, did you send mom a present? Fuck off, man. Why did you do that? I mean, that's if you're already close and talking, but if you're not, I would just keep, keep ignoring everybody until something changes in you or elsewhere. Right. Yeah. Nicole and I are both firmly on the side of don't go to the hardware store for milk. Yeah. Don't reason, don't try to reason things out with people who can't be reasoned with. No. But I guess Beth, is there ever a road for coming? Have you seen in your practice a road for people? Like, what are some reasons why people would stop an estrangement? Well, they change, right? Like people change. So um, the reasons we become estranged, those conditions can change. Sometimes it's simply by age or our own um, transformation and healing and our own recovery and therapy work makes it makes it possible for us to consider relationships in ways that we were not able or willing to in the past, but the people change. Yeah. And then furthermore, what are some things not to say to somebody who's estranged from their family? Oh man. Let me think of things people said to me in my (laughs) twenties. I'm thinking of, I just think that I think it's like a real, a thing of people just, if you don't get it, you really don't get it. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I really disliked, I had a hard time in my twenties. I I didn't know I could just lie to people and be like, yeah, my mom's so-and-so. And and we talk all the time, which is what now I would just say, like, how's your mother? I'd be like, she's great. (laughs) You know, but in my twenties, I was sort of pathologically honest in situations with strangers. I didn't need to be like a, you know, a dental office staff or something, or, um, friends of my in-laws asking about my parents or my mother or something. Um, and now I would just have a white lie to make the situation comfortable for me. But when I was young, people would say really guilt trippy things like, oh, you only have one mother. You must be breaking your mother's heart. <laughs> you can't do that. Just like all this stuff. And I was like, girl, you do not know the circumstances. <laughs> like I don't come to this decision lightly. <laughs> Nobody who's a stranger in their family came to that decision lightly. And you may not, the person you're talking to may not even be able to tell you the depths even if you were best friends, the depths of the reasons why they had to, they had to take this painful choice of cutting themselves off completely from that person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I I think just when, when, okay, there's not to get into the Talmud because that's the next episode of Sagittarian matters and Capricorn (laughs) matters. But a piece of Talmud that I studied when I went to Svara, the queer Talmud camp was Lev Yodea Maratnaf show, which means the heart knows the bitterness of its own soul. 
Um, you just have to trust that when people do things that sound really extreme, like they needed to, whether or not it seems reasonable to you, whether or not it's going to be reasonable to them in 10 years, like you just got to like, let people do what they need to do. They're doing the best they can at the time. And, um, yeah. So if people are estranged and that confounds you or threatens you as a parent or a child or whoever makes you feel insecure about your own attachments, just like, you know, the world is big. And like, I didn't have those certain relationships in my life, but I luckily am a queer person and I've always had enormous chosen family and, um, found family elsewhere. And I really hope for this person who's experiencing this painful estrangement that hopefully isn't so painful anymore. I hope they have a giant, loving, wildly fun chosen family. Yeah. How do they make friends as an adult? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I do want to say I am struck when you're telling me the things people said to you, which I have heard before with my own family members. It just, it really centers the parent who obviously didn't do something wonderful along the way. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. center like that must really break your heart to not be able to have a parent or to not have been yeah. parented or to have been yeah. hurt by your, like you as a human being who had that person as your emotional support system, way of learning how to act in the world. Like that must've been really heartbreaking for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, luckily, um, Luckily, I've always been surrounded by queer people who some of them had really painful, short or long estrangement experiences. Like that's just a phenomenon in queer life. Sometimes it's because of homophobia. Sometimes it's because of other reasons, sometimes a mixture. Um, so luckily, my experience did not feel completely illegible. And as I've gotten older, I've had more and more encounters with people who have long estrangement with, you know, their parents or other important people in their families. Um, and it just sucks. And yeah, Lev Yodea Maratnov show, the heart knows the bitterness of its own soul. I just want to tell younger people listening to the podcast, just kidding. There's no one young listening to the podcast. <laughs> you can be dyke identified and still be trans inclusive. I think that that's the thing yes! that's happening right now with young people <laughs> is that they like see turfs in the distance and they're like, that must be what all lesbians are. And it's just, it's just, it's not just more misogyny. It's just more people hating women and lesbians, which at the end of the day, we always end up there. Have you noticed? Yeah. I just like, don't try the, the actual queer people, like the actual LGBT trans women dykes too. They also want to be called dykes. I know. Let us all be dykes. We need to do a hard pivot here, a hard yeah. pivot into fear because you have something called homework club. Don't be afraid do of I homework ever. club, but their topic for February, the thing you're talking about, you talk about one thing every month yeah. aside from all the other things you offer. And the thing you're talking about in February is fear, 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 be wary. And homework club is a, it's a, it's a support platform for artists. All creative people can benefit from it. You get homework on the first of the month on a particular topic, something artists grapple with. Then we have a workshop that's live, but it's recorded. And then we have a study hall every month. That's a co-working space where we help each other get something done that we've been avoiding. So <laughs> January, we focused on time. December, we focused on death acceptance for artists. And February, we are focusing on fear. And fear is evergreen. So it's going to pop up probably every other year of Homework Club, if not annually. And we're going to grapple with like, what are we afraid of? How do you become conscious of fear? And then what do you do when you become aware of the fears? How do you separate fears from fundamental truths of living? 
How do we hold them up for consideration, decide which fears are actually useful and integrative into our lives, like run from that loud noise that might hurt you, and which fears like rejection are actually keeping your life limited and small. So we're going to be mm. grappling with fear. How do you become aware of it, name it, pull it out of you, um, and decide to take action anyway in, in pursuit of what it is you want and the kind of life and career you want to have. Mm. Can you give us any other examples of the types of fears that keep our lives small? Well, artists have a lot of fear just because you're human, not because you're bad, but artists, you have an extra vulnerability, right? You mm -hmm. are, um, whether or not you're pursuing, like making money from your art, most artists want their work to be seen. They want it. They want it to have an audience, big or small, international or regional, um, and they most hope to have some sort of money coming in from the art that they make. And that includes a ton of vulnerability. It's really vulnerable to take the thing from your interior and make it exterior for the world because you set, you allow the world into something that was quite private at one time that was very interior and um, you have no control over what happens. It being understood, misunderstood, liked, hated, de derived, you, you just stolen, you just don't have control over it. And that's scary. It's really scary to be vulnerable in public like that. Um, so artists have particular vulnerabilities that lead to a ton of fear that might that might result in some self-limiting, life-stifling activity like um, not sharing their work, not applying for things, not um, inviting audiences in so their work can have a bigger life, not going after opportunities that would help their work reach more people or bring in more resources or be amplified in any way. Artists sometimes are really scared to take up space, whether that's in person or on the internet with their work. Um, they can be so, so afraid of rejection that they won't ask for things. Rejection, fear of rejection is a really big one. Fear of humil humiliation, fear of um, ridicule, being misunderstood, being stolen from. There's so many different fears that artists come up against. And we're going to be talking about how do you have the fears, not judge or condemn yourself for having them, but simply understand you have them just because you're a person. That's all. That's the only reason you have them. It's just because you're human. Totally normal. But then how do you actually navigate them? How do you make tolerable um, steps while acknowledging like, I'm afraid to do this thing and I'm going to do it anyway. And here's how. And here's how that will go if some of my fears come true, because sometimes they do, but most of them don't is the thing. Yeah, I think that's great. This is so helpful. Everyone, here's a question. If somebody listens to this after the fact, can they access the February fear talk from Home yes. Club? You can always access previous workshops. So you can join Homework Club anytime. The prices are going up this spring, but right now it's still $15 a month. So I highly recommend you join now before it goes up to $18 a month. Um, and you have access to current and previous workshops. So you can kind of pick and choose what you want to dive into. Everything's evergreen. It's not on like a curriculum where you have to watch this and then this and then this. Occasionally we do a series like last year in 2022, you can access a three-part grant series. Um, but you can just kind of like pick up and put down as your life allows. This is tremendous. This is a huge savings. It's huge value. <laughs> and there's also, there's a built-in community. I think you can't afford not to do it. Oh yeah. I didn't even mention the accountability pods for people who want to be in one. I hand match four artists together into an accountability pod and introduce them and give them some like starting tips. 
And then they have three new artist people in their lives to like have community with and talk to and text and like meet up with and talk about like, this is what's going on. Or did you do the homework this month? This is stuff I'm afraid of. It's just more artist friends, more artist community. I love that. Beth Pickett, thank you for coming on Capricorn Matters. Thank you as always for having, having me. It's like one of my favorite places to be. Well, we love having you here. Please come back. And people, if you have questions for Beth in the meantime, you can send them to our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. You can find her and Homework Club at bethpickens.com. Bethpickens.com. Find me on Instagram at bethpickensconsulting. Find her in the Craigslist personals. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Craigslist personals. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.